hello, hello. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast in association with HJC Helmets. I am your host, Mr. Joe Robinson, and joining me as ever is James Spender. Hello, Joe. Hello, hello, James. How are you doing? And we are on the precipice of the Tokyo Olympics. We are just days away from the start. So we thought, wouldn't it be good if we got a double Olympic gold medalist on the show? And we did. So today's guest is none other than Joanna Rousel-Shand, two-time track pursuit gold medalist. But before we talk to her about all things Olympics, James and I are going to rattle through some of the things that are getting us going and not getting us going in the world of cycling right now. James, how are you doing, mate? It is absolutely roasting from where we're recording, just in case... The listener doesn't know we do this still from our homes and to get really good sound quality we have to kind of like fill our room with soft furnishings and sh- shut the curtains and shut all the doors so we're probably both in 45 degree heat while recording this yeah our listeners. i'm covered in bubble wrap and egg boxes just to dampen the sound and it is very hot <laughs> it's that part it's that part of um the annual cycle of being british where you go all through the permutations of losing heavily at your chosen sport and then the backlash against the team. And then you arrive sometime during the perceived summer and start complaining that it's too hot, having gone through uh, several months of complaining that it's bitterly cold. Then you go, you look into getting an air conditioning unit and then you realise that you'd only need it for four days a year. So it's a completely unsustainable purchase. Exactly. So um, I'm not even going to say it. It's really hot, it's and so I actually, hot. I actually, it's so hot. But I love it, absolutely love it. It's great. I wish there could be more heat like this. Also, well, not also, but it does worry me that um, the heat is uh, an in, well, a very direct consequence of global warming. That's very true, which is a serious matter. So that's kind of sad, yeah. Which is rubbish. So I'm not really sure what to do about that. I feel like I'm sort of liking something that is also the author of our own demise, and that I'm also responsible for you know we're doing this over the internet but the internet isn't free there's no there's a global cost to the internet as we know hosting servers running electricity as we've heard bitcoin very unsustainable currency the internet's the same thing click farms yeah all of it um but anyway click james farms, yeah. how, how are anyway, you mate yeah. how you been uh what you been up to anything interesting um Anything interesting? I had yeah, glorious, lovely weekend. Um, I cycled down to a little patch of woodland that a friend's dad owns. Sounds very grand, but you know it's literally just like this little chunk of the Kent countryside, which you can't farm on because it's kind of like too hilly and that. And he's had it for years and years and years. We go camping down there, so cycled down there, met a few new friends. Um, one of them, fantastic new bloke in my life. Why is he a fantastic new bloke in your life, James? Because he introduced himself as my name's Dave and I'm an international juggler for hire. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> juggler for and, hire. And you kind of think like you're like, hmm, this is only going to go one of two ways, which is you're kind of crazy. But he wasn't. He was totally lovely, and he was an exceptionally gifted juggler. He was so good at juggling. You told me a little an- anecdote about managing to use juggling to get sank out of a tree well yeah we had uh, this really cool kind of polystyrene plane that you would have loved when you were like an eight-year-old boy because it was just like a massive glider just dash it like a tennis ball and it would go so obviously we're playing around with that it gets stuck in a tree and then uh, me and this other chap dan are throwing sticks up not coming anywhere close to knock it out <laughs> dave dave much stuff's like don't worry 
juggler to the rescue and they started juggling underneath it and knocked it out the tree <laughs> but i can't i don't i don't want to sound like i'm taking the mick because i kind of yeah i kind of am i suppose but he was just like one of those people in life that he's just a really really thoroughly lovely guy lovely person and you meet someone like that and it's a little bit disarming because you realize the rest of us are so bloody awful and cynical and you meet someone like that who's just basically telling you what they do and what life's like from their perspective and there's some weird element of like judgment or doubt that creeps into my mind so i'm admitting to that i'm saying i'm an awful individual i'm too cynical and dave is we should be more like dave we should all be international jugglers he also told me that he was um traveling around colombia and he got mugged for all of his stuff including his passport and anything that would say um his identification and and also money so then he juggled his way out of colombia he went busking. Incredible. He went busking and raised enough money busking to feed himself and his mate for several days while he raised slightly more money to get the bus fare so they could travel 20, 20, um, 20 hours to the consulate. It was only the arse out of nowhere. And then when they got there, no one would take them in because they didn't have any ID, so they had to go and stay in a brothel. So then he started juggling in the brothel. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, Anyway, so that was Dave. That was my weekend. How about you, mate? What have you been doing? Well, the thing I'm liking at the moment is that I got away. I got away to Europe. Oh, you did? You did? You yeah, went to yeah. which country? All, Your favourite I, I went to Italy, my favourite one. Um, it weren't my favourite one when I went on Monday morning because it was the morning after the night before when we lost European Championships to Italy on penalties. I'd only just stopped crying when then I got on a plane full of Italian journalists, including Sky Sports, equivalent, Sky Sports Italia's equivalent to Martin Tyler their lead commentator, uh, Fabiano Grazzini, I think his name was, really lovely bloke, um, basically helped me and the photographer fill in our uh, passenger locator forms on the flight. Very nice man. Uh, told us that England were hard done by in the final. And I think he was doing that just because he could see I'd been crying all evening. Um, <laughs> but no, and, and just in case any listeners worrying, uh, it was all COVID secure. We did all our PCR tests. I'm currently in a quarantine lockdown situation at home as well but we were out there for a bit of work did some big rides some classic climbs around Lake Como rode the Madonna del Gisalo which is a very famous climb from Lombardia it's got a church at the top dedicated to cyclists and I also rode the Muro di Simano which is a 1.7 kilometer climb that averages 17 percent and has maximum gradients of 27 percent and it's the hardest climb I've ever done James that is a killer. That's a killer climb. We did because that's near Lake Como. Yeah, and it's near the Gisello. Yep. And we went out there on a press trip, and of course we did the Gisello because that was Gisello. That because that's part of the the route. And then obviously we spied this other climb, um, and they went. You know, a bunch of journalists went down it. They didn't reappear for a very long time, and then when they did, they were pushing their bikes. It was pretty really? spectacular because the yeah. last the last bit of it is insane. It's like if anyone's ridden in the Lake District. That's the only other place in the world where I've encountered such incredibly steep roads because there are long climbs and there are tough climbs, don't get me wrong, all over the world. But the lakes is a place where the, the gradient is just obscene. You know? Yeah, but like 10, you know, I would have taken 10 kilometres at 12%. Like I'd, have, I'd have happily, much happier done something like a Paso Giao or a Gavia where it's steep and long, but it's a rideable steep. Yeah. So as long as you're just in a very small gear, you can just Spins. go as slowly as you need yeah. to to the top. Spin to win. 
Whereas this, like 20, 25%, 27% at multiple sections, your recovery is at 17%, 16%, which isn't recovery, especially for me who's like 95 kilos. You're on the limit the whole way. And it's like a gym session when you're on your bike. Yeah. And the guy hosting me out there, a really lovely guy, Luca, he told me that he reckoned 80% of people have to walk up it. Yeah, I bet. And the thing is as well, it's not like you can, it's not just about your fitness, it's also technique. Because mm. as you've seen, you're bike handling. Yeah, you'll yeah. have seen, you know, countless pictures over the years of riders pushing bikes up, um, things like the Koppenberg or the Angleroo is a classic one in Spain. Once you lose it, it's almost impossible to get back on. Like, just to start on something that steep, it's just impossible. So it's a lot about bike handling as well, because frankly, you end up going so slowly. Physics just says you are going to fall sideways now, <laughs> and then you do. So it's an incredible. So yeah, I, I applaud not just your ability to escape these aisles, but also your ability to cycle up that wall. That's impressive. Yeah, it was tough, man. It was tough. I I would definitely recommend it though. So when when life goes back to normal, get out to Lake Como. Some amazing riding, mixture of like classics climbs from Lombardia, but then also loads of high alpine passes. You can get into Switzerland really easily. It's a really lovely part of the world. Do really nice food. And you might see George might see George Clooney if you're lucky. Exactly. You might see George Clooney. You might see a load of celebrities. Uh, there's a lot of Americans out there, actually. Lots of Danes. Um, but that's what I've been liking, actually, is riding abroad. Sorry to lovely. rub it into everyone who has, hasn't been able to do that. Um, well, the thing is, mate, you say that like as if I haven't got things in my li- life to like really, really hard, and you know, I'm liking really, really hard, which is a strange thing, <laughs> a strange way of phrasing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is uh, when I arrived back from um, a photo shoot in the New Forest. I've been getting out there. I went on a photo shoot in the New Forest yesterday. On my doormat was a big parcel from Amazon. Inside it, two kilos of wasabi peas. Wow, two wow. kilos of wasabi, these, and these are like pub grade. Do they keep well then? They keep well. I've had them before. I've had them before. They keep well. Um, as I say, pub grade, so they're pub strength, so there's a good kick on them. Every now, every one, you know, one in six is a bit of uh, wasabi roulette. Best bit about it is, though, 14 grams of protein per 100 grams. Right, okay. Low in sugar. It's a good little snack, quite low in fat as well. It's on a, on a par with a, uh, a chickpea, um, but it's made out of a green pea. Just thought I'd share that with you. 16, 15.97 for two kilos, seven... Seven ninety ninety eight ish for a kilo, which is not bad, not bad. Oh, on that note though, actually, Holland and Barrett have got a penny sale at the moment. And I know, and, no, and, no, no, we're fans. Are, don't, no. James, don't come at me because you'll remember I went to the Holland and Barrett near our office back in the day. I do. I bought a load of uh, banana chips yes, and peanuts with raisins. I put them in the communal workspace. And you ate most of them. I ate them all. Literally, in literally two days, I turned around and you'd gorged yourself on it. And I got that in the penny sale, so it's benefited you. It has benefited don't come, me. Don't come at me no. saying the penny sale's not yeah. worth its time, because it used, is. I used to go into the workshop for a formal Allen key and come out with a little handful of nuts. Yeah. That's and you used ben- to go, oh, sorry, Joe. Just, you know, just really like nuts and raisins. I'd be like, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, you were young and new at the time, so I was... I was in the process of just asserting my uh, presumed authority on you by stealing your food. That's how I got. Yeah, that's got how hazed. I got hate. No, I I just object <laughs> to the penny sale because when you run the numbers, it ain't no sale. It's basically exactly the same price, pretty much. They just jack up one thing and then give you a penny for the other. Well, look, I got a load of cashews and then a dried blueberry and cranberry mix, and I'm happy. Happy. What's your favourite nut? Cashew. It's not a nut. 
Alright, um, Brazil. It's a droop. Yeah, we can have Brazil. Thanks. It's good enough. Yeah. Uh, anything else to add on this part of the show? Um, I've also um, been liking... So one thing I don't like is that my heavy reliance on Amazon at the moment, I've got a free Prime membership because I want to get a few things delivered quickly. Bezos! I hate Bezos! And Bezos is aligning himself with things like going to space and also taking um, uh, a female, nearly, nearly astronaut, American fighter pilot uh, who never quite made it into the NASA space program. And then Bezos now is like, I'm going to take you up, man. Uh, and it's a bit like you can't guard yourself with an oxygenarian woman because thinking that karma won't kill you both when your rocket explodes, which is, I feel like what he's doing. He's trying to buy good publicity by doing something altruistic. Like, I don't know. I've got every, I don't necessarily believe in capitalism. I don't not believe in it. And, you know, fair play, whatever. You made yourself a really successful company. Equally, you are strangling the world. Equally, I'm a massive hypocrite because I'm sitting here saying, well, my wasabi nuts from you. So I don't know what to do. I'm in a moral quandary as I am with the heat. Point being, also from Amazon, I bought a carbon fibre repair kit because that tail fin rack that I was banging on about last week, yeah. uh, I rode it into a post, a little bollard, didn't see the bollard, forgot right. how wide the bicycle was. I cracked it pretty hard and fair play to the rack. It didn't sever, it just cracked. So I was like, I'm not going to throw this away. It's an amazing thing. So I got on Amazon, 10 quid, epoxy resin, hardener, whatever, mix it up, get your cloth, right, yeah. Yeah, carbon fiber cloth, wrap it round, blah blah blah. Jobs are good and it took me it took me all the way to Kenton back the other day. Nice. So it well seems done. to have worked. So that I've you know thrifty. Yeah, thrifty. Thrifty on the nuts, thrifty on the repair jobs. Come back to me when I'm two kilos heavier and something's snapped on my bike and fallen into my spokes and I've crashed. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So that. Anything anything else you want to add, Joe? Anything you don't like? What don't you like? Other than quarantining. <sighs> I don't mind quarantine, actually. It's all right. Um, I'll tell you what I'm also liking a lot of. Um, and this is... I haven't got anything I'm not liking, but something I'm really liking at the moment is uh, Dark Chocolate Bounties. Ooh. Yeah. Bold. They've got Unsung, them in my, my local... Bar. Yeah, exactly. So my local Londis has started stocking them. So I've got my dear dear other half to go get me some for to keep me company during lockdown. Delicious. What a snack. And they're really low, actually. They're really, if you compare them to the rest of the chocolate bars on the market, on the shelf, calorifically, they're quite low. And because they've got coconut in them, technically, they're good for you. Bit of, bit of protein. Yeah, no, that's good. All right, then. So you're going to space with Bezos. Right. And on your way out of, you know, just before you pierce the atmosphere. Yeah. He's like, hey, Joe, we're just going to pull into the service station to have, like, one last wee before we get to them orbiting the moon. and. Could you pick up some chocolate bars for us? Can it be Can it be South Mims? It's the South Mims services, yeah. Can you pick up a few little chocolate bars and snacks for me and this female astronaut I've got with me? So what are you buying for yourself? What are you buying for Bezos? And what are you buying for the female astronaut? Whose name I'm going to look up while you think this, because it's rude to not know it. So for me, easy, easy ever, as easy as it comes, I'm getting a bottle of Lilt. Yeah. And I'm getting a bottle of Cherry Lucasade, because I feel like I might need some energy towards the latter part of the trip. <laughs> I'm going to be getting two right. packets. I'm going to be getting two packets of crisps. I'm going to be getting uh, flame grilled steak McCoys, and then I'll be buying one of the grab bags, the bigger bags of Thai sweet chili sensations. Delicious, one of the best crisps out there. Unbelievable crisp. And then I'm going to get two chocolate bars. I'm going to get a Twix extra because I think that's the best chocolate bar, pound for pound. 
and all, when all is considered. And then for secondly, for the same reason I'm getting that Lucas say that, you know, I might be flagging towards the end of the day, I need to get myself a boost bar because it's got that glucose energy in the middle. You know, just give me that push over the line to get into space. Then I'd probably mirror that for Bezos and the astronaut. The only thing I probably would add to that is a couple of bottles of water so we can stay hydrated and a couple of tubes of Pringles because Pringles are delicious. But that's about it. Great answer. I'd hope that um, that Bezos' uh, space program, whatever they're called, they're not SpaceX, the other one. I hope they've sort of thought about the water aspect and you didn't have to buy bottles of water. I don't think they, they won't have a Pringles dispenser on board, but they probably got tap. Well, yeah, they may have an endorsement with like vitamin water, with like, yeah, 50 cent. And just... <laughs> San Pellegrino. Probs. Oh, San, talking to San Pellegrino, but that's where I went in Italy, James. Really? But that's another story for another time. Oh, it's sad. It's not the same town. I thought I was going to go there to like a massive tourist hotspot. Actually, this is what I'm not liking. The demise of San Pellegrino. It's like a completely rundown. It's like a British coastal town that was in its pomp in the 70s. And now no one goes there and everything's derelict and run down. There's a massive grand hotel that's huge that's has been shut down since the late 70s. Um, and it was really sad. I thought I was going to go there and really enjoy it. The only good thing I did do, though, there was that the only still San Pellegrino water in the world is running from a tap in the middle of San Pellegrino. And I filled up my bottle from there. So. I'm one of the rare few that have drunk still San Pellegrino water. See, because then it goes because the, the mainstream is it comes out fizzy, doesn't it? It erupts fizzy yeah. from the ground. Yeah. yeah, that's why it's so significant. Yeah. Is that it's sparkling from source? Sparkling from source. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. And before we move on to our actual interview with Joe Rousel Shand, just to add that the name of the female astronaut I've looked it up. She is called Wally Funk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. There we go. Anyway, Joe Rousel Shand, everyone. How are you doing? Where, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm good. I am in southwest London, which is home these days. Um, I'm on summer holidays from uni, which is nice. So um, you have just finished year one. I'm doing a degree in medicine, so training to be a doctor. And I've just finished the first academic year. So it's, yeah, six weeks off now. Wowzers. Do you know what your specialty, do you have any inkling of what your specialty might be yet? Um, I always liked the idea of being a GP. Since I've started medical school, I question if I'm clever enough for that. Like for a GP, you need to know a bit about everything. Whereas if you're a specialist, you need to just know about that tiny little thing. And I think I always liked the idea of GP, but I am open-minded to other things now. Just I think my personality might be more suited to being very good at one little thing judging by what I've done in the past, as opposed to being a generalist. But um, yeah, we'll see. I, I do love GP and that, that is sort of where my heart has been. But yeah, we'll see if anything else um, takes my interest over the next few years. So we start our pro- first proper placements in September. So that's quite exciting to actually, yeah, the last, the this first academic year has been um, four days a week online and then one day we've been going in. So that has, yeah, it's been a lot of, zoom and microsoft teams and all of those sort of things that we're all getting used to now so um not really my favorite like i've had cpr training online i mean like come on now like if if, if, (laughs) if you have a cardiac arrest like don't come to me because i i've been taught that using the keyboard and like 
pushing the buttons in time. I was going to say, is that <laughs> spacebar? Spacebar, yeah, spacebar, yeah, spacebar. Yeah. So I think it's actually the P and Q buttons, maybe. That but anyway, that's not that's not relevant. Um, but yeah, no, this this is the level of medical education has been at this year, unfortunately. So um, yeah, looking forward to getting out there a bit soon. Oh, that's just so anyone going to medical degree is so impressive. But to be like, yep, yeah, I'm going to retrain. Having been a professional athlete already, I remember there's a a, a rugby player Jamie Roberts who did the same who just went yeah I've done playing rugby now I'm going to become a doctor and I just find it incredible that you can just switch from being very very good at one thing and then being very very good at another really important thing is just yeah I I think the key is to like embrace being average to an extent and like I'm not aiming like I'm a medical school but I'm not aiming to be like top of the year or or the best in the world anything like I'm aiming to to pass the exams and be a competent doctor um which because a lot of people say to me like oh god you've gone from one like really tough high pressure career to another and I think that's part of my personality like I obviously for some weird reason want that um yeah. want that sort of lifestyle but you know I am trying I'm I've sort of got a very different mentality now that I'm not trying to be the best like I'm trying to sort of enjoy the process and yeah not competing against people anymore which is a very different mindset to how it used to be as an athlete where it's all about being better than everybody else and being the best in the world and that's a very different mindset in in general so yeah a little bit different so that's actually a good that's a good segue there joe because obviously we've got you on today because it's an olympic year albeit a, a belated one um a year late and if you want to talk about the olympic games it helps to get someone who knows a thing or two about winning gold and you're a double Olympic medalist. You've not got one gold, you've got two. So you just seem like the perfect person to talk to about, not only about this year, Tokyo, because obviously you'll be working on the Olympic Games this year, but also about what it's like to, to be at an Olympic Games, two Olympic Games, one of which was a home Games, one in Rio, and just the pressures. And, and what I was thinking before we came on this call was, this will be the first time since 2008 that you've, Olympic Games is coming up and you're not going to have been busy preparing, nerves, worrying about winning Olympic gold. How does it feel this year knowing that you've not got basically the biggest three or two or three weeks of your sort of four-year cycle ahead of you? Yeah, it's, that's a good question. Um, a, a few people have asked me that. They've said, like, how am I going to feel during the Games? And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to feel because this is the first one since I've retired. It's obviously been... Well, championships, World Cups, that sort of thing, which I've been able to work on as a commentator. So I've sort of been able to um, keep in there with the sport in that sense. But yeah, it's um, it's weird sort of seeing all the hype and all the build up and feeling absolutely no nerves and pressure. And I can sort of enjoy it. And it's it's a very sort of different mindset. Um, I'm aware that once the Games has been or happens, I won't be a reigning Olympic champion anymore which I've been lucky enough to call myself that for nine years now, which is, you know, to think not many people get to have a sort of an odd, an odd number, the number of years of reigning champion. You know, it's normally obviously in, in sets of four. So I've got a little sort of cheeky bonus year in there. Um, but yeah, no, it's um, it's going to be really interesting sort of observing it from a different point of view. Like I remember watching the Beijing Games in 2008. And at that point I was on the GB squad. Um, was I on this? Yeah, I was on, I was on the senior squad then. I'd been on the long list for that games, but hadn't been selected. But I was only 19 years old, so I hadn't been expecting to go. Um, but I remember watching those games, like paying a lot of attention to the Beijing games and thinking really carefully about 
what it would be like to be competing there and hopefully I'd be at the next, you know, the forthcoming games in London. Um, so this is very different to watch it really as a fan and not thinking about myself in, in any way and just being able to sort of enjoy the performances and sort of, sort of critically analyse that as well um, from the point of view of someone who isn't trying to get in the team themselves anymore. So, yeah, it's quite quite nice, quite nice not having that pressure. And it must be such a juxtaposition to your first games, which was 2012, because not only was it your debut games, which is a huge sort of achievement in itself, it was a home games. Yep in London and you are from London yeah so it's not even like you're from Britain you are it is in your hometown yeah and even on top of that the women's team Prashit team in 2012 you Danny King Laura Trott were red hot favorites you'd you'd won the world cup you were winning uh world championships it was you were in record breaking phenomenal form and you were almost the pinnacle of a track team that were almost expected to win every single gold medal at that Olympics so that looking back now what nine years on how how were the nerves then how was the pressure when sort of the uh, opening ceremony was happening the euphoria it was all on the news how are you feeling at that moment and also you were like 23 as well which is so so young yeah no that's a really good question so yeah I was 23 Danny was 21 and I think Laura was 20 so that yeah I think there's three years between me and Laura so overall a very very young team um and like you said yeah we'd won the world cup we won the European champs won the world champs we'd already broken the world record three times that year um so we knew we were the team to beat and that's a sort of weird position to be in because you're training you know after the world championships which I think were April that year between April and August you've got no competitions that you're exposed to at all you're purely just um, training behind closed doors and hoping that the times that you're riding are going to be faster than what everyone else, you know, comes to the games with. So it's really weird because you've got nothing to sort of gauge your form off. And obviously everyone was talking about, you know, being at home games and all the sort of the associated pressure with that. I think the good thing for us is, although in the cycling world, a lot of people were expecting us to win, in the sort of wider Olympic world, I think the people with the most pressure were the ones that had won golds in Beijing. So in the cycling team, it was the likes of Chris Hoy, Vicky Pendleton, Bradley Wiggins, all those guys that they, they were sort of the names on everyone's lips. They, they were the ones with all the sort of big media commitments. And I think we were lucky that we almost just sort of slipped, not under the radar, but like not quite as much pressure as some of those guys had. Um, and we spent a lot of time talking about the games and how it's just another bike race. We almost like played it down a lot. We worked a lot with Steve Peters, who's a psychiatrist. We did a lot of work with him. And it was very much about you're going to get on the track in a velodrome. It's 250 metres. You're going to ride 12 laps as fast as you can. It's as simple as that. And I really had spent well, years, not even months, but years sort of downplaying the games as really is just another bike race. And it is, you know, you're racing the same girls that you've raced around the world, at all the different championships you've competed against. And, you know, it's often the same officials that turn up. Um, you know, when you're there in the track centre, it does feel quite familiar compared to other competitions. And actually, in the weird way, you have less competitors at the Olympics because the qualification process, you get less nations competing. So, And wasn't the Worlds at the same? The Worlds were in the Olympic velodrome the same year, wasn't it? It was, so it was a World Cup. So we had a World Cup there yeah. in February. So which, you'd already yeah. competed at that velodrome. So it wasn't yeah. like you were walking into that purpose-built stadium. Yeah for the first time on Olympic sort of your opening night. So that must have been like another, like a familiarity. Kind yeah, of. definitely. Like the more familiar it is, the better. So yeah, we had the World Cup there in February, which if anything, that that felt 
bigger in terms of there was a lot more nations competing, a lot more riders competing, which is just the way the sort of the World Cup series work. And then obviously you qualify for world champs and then you qualify for the Olympics. So the Olympics is a tiny bit quieter in terms of space in the track centre, which is always nice when you're trying to find somewhere to put your rollers and warm up. Um, but yeah, it, the, the whole sort of venue did feel a little bit familiar at that point. We did most of our training based in Manchester and then our final two weeks of prep was um, in Newport in South Wales before we came over to London. So we hadn't, we got there after the opening ceremony and I think I think we traveled over the day of the road race so I think our first day of training on the velodrome was the day of the women's road race so we hadn't even been in in London that long for the actual games but the venue still felt fairly familiar and um I'm sort of losing track of what the original question was I think you're asking me about sort of pressure and, and preparing preparing for sort of the home games yeah, as but... a favorite and stuff but um yeah like I say it was, it was all about sort of almost downplaying it and telling ourselves just some of the race until you win the race and then like check your phone and it's like having a meltdown because there's thousands of notifications. There's people that you've not spoken to for a decade that suddenly have got back in contact. Twitter, Facebook, everything, like people um, go mad. People that don't watch sport are watching sport for the first time. People that don't watch cycling, I mean, are following sort of cycling for the first time. And that is what I really wasn't prepared for at all. Like I was prepared for going to a big competition. I was prepared for what happens if you win in terms of, you know, the initial media commitments and, you know, things like go to dope control, podium ceremonies, that sort of thing. I wasn't prepared for like the sort of the almost media storm afterwards and just how much attention it would get. And I remember the next day, we'd had a really busy day of media commitments anyway, because that's sort of part and parcel of when you win an Olympic medal, you've got to go through that process. Um, but me and my teammate, Danny, we were desperate to go shopping in the big Westfield, which was right by the Olympic Village. Yeah. You know, we'd only brought with us, our, you know, our Team GB tracksuits and everything and just typical. And obviously also when you're training, like you don't want to wander around the shops, like that would be unnecessary time on your feet. Like we know as cyclists, you know, we don't want to, don't stand when you can yeah. walk and all that. So we were desperate to go shopping and we had like a little sort of spare hour in our schedule. And the guys from Team GB said we could go, said we could go around Westfield, but they wanted to um, give us some security to go with us. And we were like, come on now, like, what, what is going on? They're like, no, no, we'll, we'll give you someone to go with you. And they were like, do not take your medals with you. And that was the first time I was parted with my Olympic medal because it, it had not left like my neck since it's winning it the day before. <laughs> um, so I left it in a safe at Team GB house. And me and Danny uh, went into Westfield um, with this guy who was a police officer and working as security for Team GB at the Games. And so we walked in, full Team GB tracksuits, walked into Westfield and we were just like surrounded by people immediately. Like it felt like thousands. I'm sure it wasn't thousands. I'm sure it was in this, not even hundreds, but yeah, everybody like noticed us and they were like, Oh my God, you girls competed for team GB. You won. Can we have photos? Can we have autographs? People were giving me their babies to hold. And <laughs> it, I just, I just had never in a million years imagined it would be like that. Like I'd already been at world champion three times and you know, outside the cycling world, you know, you don't, you don't get recognized, you know, it just wasn't a thing at all. And suddenly, you know, we couldn't even walk into a shopping center without getting um, stopped and just completely surrounded by people. So yeah, very, very different to anything I'd ever experienced before uh, and very, very special, of course. And in, in, you know, in the lead up to those races, you've done dozens of races before leading into just, just in 2012 alone. And then you've just undertaken the most you know, important race of your life that means that people hand you babies when you go shopping. Yes. Can you remember those races? Because we look at the T, you know, we've got a, a perfect view from our sofas 
of a track and you've got the camera and you've got highlights, but it is frenetic, it is fast. How much can you really kind of process during a race? How many memories do you come away with where you can you know, pick out somebody's face or, or is it just like every race is this the same blur of colour? <laughs> a gun yeah. and then a bell and then an end. I don't remember as much as I would have liked to. Like I remember, so we had day one of our, for us competing was the qualification round and then day two was like a semi-final and final. I remember the qualification round feeling absolutely amazing. I was sort of coming off the track thinking like, my legs are too good to be true. Like what is going to go wrong in the next 24 hours? Because, you know, surely my, my form can't be that good. Um, so I sort of remember that. I remember the semi-final feeling absolutely awful and like I'd lost all my form in a few hours. Um, and then I remember the final feeling really good again. And my sort of one memory from the final is I think it was about a lap to go. And we just caught sight of the American team. We beat them by six seconds. So it was a big gap. And, you know, you don't normally, you know, in an ideal world, in a, in a, in a pursuit or team pursuit, you catch your competitor. But normally, it's sort of at that level, you're not really going to see your competitors at all because, you know, you're sort of that close to the other team uh, in terms of ability. But I remember about a lap to go, we could just see the back of the American team. And I remember my one thought was nobody fall off now. And that, that was my thought at a lap to go at the Olympics. I was like, come on, girls, let's just stay upright. Like, we've got this. Like, just do not mess up in this last lap. Um, <laughs> and that was sort of the one thought that sort of crossed my mind in that, in that last lap of the Olympic final. But other than that, it, it's quite a blur. I've got a vague memory on the podium of telling myself to try and remember this moment because it will be over quickly. But that is, that is pretty much all I remember. Like, I often get asked who presented us with our medals and our flowers, and I have no idea the answer to that question at all. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a shame how you sort, of, you sort of lose those memories. I've got sort of, I obviously took photos when I was there, and, you know, I can look back at photos and sort of that prompts my memory of things that happened in the sort of following couple of days. But the actual races, I, like I say, I remember feeling really good, not very good, and really good again which is just, you know, how, how your legs go sometimes. And obviously the outcome was what we wanted. But yeah, that one thought of nobody fall off was, was about all that went through my head <laughs> over those three races, unfortunately. And do you ever, can, or can you ever kind of communicate those things beyond just thinking them? So I'm, I'm assuming you're not going to be shouting nobody fall off, nobody fall off, because that's probably kind of counterproductive and slightly unprofessional. But, you know, you're, you're in a team and you're changing places. How much of each other can you hear and you know do you do you actually talk to each other when you're doing it in a kind of meaningful way or is it just more just like just kind of shouting expletives or just kind of getting that energy out so how yeah how much kind of coaching of each other can you do during a cauldron kind of atmosphere like uh yeah like a velodrome yeah you, you can do very little so in training we have like three words that we use so we do hold which normally means slow the hell down i can't keep up <laughs> Um, we have squeeze, which means you're slowing down here, get a shifty on or get out the damn way because you're slowing us down. And it, obviously, we wouldn't really say this. And then the other one would be when it was a four-woman team pursuit, we'd shout three if if someone was, you know, sort of leaving the team. You know, you know there's three people left. So you hold, squeeze and three are the only words that you'd use. Uh, you don't use three when you're um, in a three-up team pursuit. I mean, if you're going to shout two, then that's a pretty bad day. But yeah, so like <laughs> looking back to London, it would just be hold and squeeze are the only words that we'd use at all during the whole race. And, you know, we spend all our time in training just using those two words if necessary. But, you know, you spend all your time trying to sort of, the, the whole sort of key to team pursuiting is perfecting the pace judgment. And you basically, one person gets the team up to speed and then you all carry on at that speed for the rest of the race in an ideal world. Of course, it never really works out like that. Um, 
but you do sort of work on just using those little tiny bits of communication. And I think any other words would be confusing. Um, but then you come and compete at home Olympic Games with a crowd going wild and you can't hear a thing. You've got an aero helmet on as well and you just have absolutely no chance whatsoever. So, yeah, all of that just goes completely out the window. Uh, you've got your coach walking the line. Um, so you see him once a lap and he gives an indication of how you're doing compared to the sort of schedule that, you, you, that you're trying to ride to. But again, with the sort of adrenaline of competition and Olympic final, that can easily go out the window as well. Um, so I think the key in a team pursuit is really being able to sort of read the body language of your teammates and just notice if someone's sort of wiggling about a little bit on the bike more than perhaps they normally do, that might mean they're struggling. And that means like when they swing up, don't go kicking through because they're not going to get back on the back and that, that would be bad for all of you. So just trying to sort of read your teammates like that is is the main thing that you can do in that situation. Because the unique thing is in, in 2012 and to that Olympic title, you did six world records in a row. Yes. So you were just. I wish I'd negotiated a bonus for that. Or something. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that would have been quite. That would have been quite good. It it in, if you think about it, if I don't know, Usain Bolt had done six hundred meters in a row and world record every time, it's pretty bonkers. So you three must have. Were you? Did you all know that you were in this incredible form? That you sort of spoke about how you'd see a slight wobble sometimes, but did you? Was there just lots of uses of the word squeeze because you were all knowing that you could just push it and push it? And even in that semi, when you said you didn't feel like you had the legs, you still were good enough to go faster than you'd ever gone before. So did you? was there like a bit of a an unspoken word between the three of you that you were like, yeah, we're, we're in this form at the moment that's unbelievable? Yeah, um... Not really. I think we were all quite surprised every time we got a world record. I remember the first one was at the Olympic test event at the London Velodrome back in February, back in the February of 2012. And that, um, I remember that being a really tough competition, like for all of us, I think it, probably partly in terms of the sort of the pressure of it and the crowd and the sort of media attention. But I remember like looking back, I was in really good form, but going into it, I was really much doubt, like really doubting myself. So we came away with that world record. I think we were all a little bit surprised. Um, then we went to the World Champs in Melbourne in 2012, April 2012, and the Aussie team are in incredible form. And they broke our world record in qualifying before we got up. So we were sat there waiting to qualify, seeing our world record, which we'd set at the London Velodrome with a, you know all that home crowd support, just get broken in a qualification round. And we were like, well, OK. Um, so we were sort of surprised that we then beat it ourselves in qualifying. Like we almost like we were aiming to qualify for the final. We weren't aiming to break a world record. Um, the final of that race, again, you know, we had to win the bike race. And, you know, as much as I talk about schedule and the coach walking the line, there comes to a point where they, you just want the information, like, are we winning or losing? Because, you know, if we're losing, we need to do something about it and schedule goes out the window. And then again, the three in the three at the London Olympics, again, it just sort of happened. And I think we were just, all of us were in good form. Conditions were good. I, we never actually set out to break the world record in qualifying. You know, I don't think any of us really wanted to sort of almost show how good we were at that stage. Um, but it sort of happened. Um, so, yeah, each one took us all by surprise. And, yeah, like you say, six in a row um, wasn't planned at all. If it had been planned, I think we all would have negotiated something better with sponsor contracts there. But, um, no, I think, yeah, like I say, each one sort of surprised us. It just happened to sort of come together on the day. And you just go those few, you know, a tenth of a second quicker per lap is 1.2 seconds over a 3k team pursuit and before you know it that's another world record gone just from a tenth of a second that you're that you're squeezing each lap so yeah it all adds up uh, but yeah definitely surprised all of us as well so you, you 
win that gold in London and you said you, you're in the Westfield Centre the next day and you're being surrounded by people, being handed people with babies and you've got that, you've reached that pinnacle. How did that then compare four years later when you then got to get on a plane to Rio as a defending champion? Um, but in a completely different circumstance, you weren't as, you hadn't been, you weren't world championships going into Rio. There's a little bit more, maybe a bit more pressure in terms of, of putting on yourself. Um, how did that compare in terms of your experience from 2012? Within the cycling world, like you said, we weren't world champions. We weren't world record holders. We hadn't even won a World Cup that winter. It really had, it hadn't all gone our way that winter at all. So I think amongst the cycling world, we weren't like red hot favourites as we had been going into London. But over like the wider sort of Olympic community, we were defending champions. So suddenly we were getting asked about, you know, being the favourites and everything. And I was like, hang on, we're not even the favourites. Like we have, we're not even the world record holders this year. But it was just very different going in as a defending champion and everything that sort of came with that. And so Eleanor and Katie, my two teammates in Rio, that was their first games. And then there was me and Laura that had won in London as well. And I remember me and Laura having quite a few sort of additional media commitments going into the games, people asking us about being defending champions. And I think the weird thing there is that when you've won something once, I think it's far harder to defend the title. I think going in as we weren't really unknowns in London, but if you are unknown or an underdog or anything like that, I think that is easier. I think I wouldn't have thought that before. I think I would have said, you know, experience, you know, really helps. But actually, when you go in like that, it can, you know, really help. But going in as a defending champion, everyone expects you to win. And anything less than gold is seen as a failure. And, you know, we, we saw that in that previous season, you know, we got bronze at the world championships and the headlines were all like, you know, women's team pursuit team fails and those sort of things. I mean, it's just part and parcel of being a, being an Olympic champion. Like people are always going to, to compare you to that standard. So I think that was quite interesting. And I think people sort of think once you've won something once, the second time should be easier. But in my experience, definitely it's harder to do it for the second time. And, you know, when I look at athletes that have been to, you know, three, four, five Olympic Games and won medal after medal, like, you know, obviously Steve Redgrave's one of the obvious examples. Like, I find that absolutely incredible to keep going back every four years and doing that. Like, that is so much harder than what people think. It's not a case of, oh, it's easy now, I've done it before. Like, I think it's a lot harder each time you go and do that. Because you know that, you like, taking your mind and body to that place is, it takes a lot out of a person. So you already, I always think like, you know what it's like. So you're almost scared because you know how much it took out of you the first time that you've then got to convince your body that you can do that again, which I find phenomenal with any professional athlete. It's like, obviously why me and James aren't is that we're just like, the fear of knowing that you're going to hurt like that, the the pressure, the sacrifice. It's like, no, you just got to do that again because we've got to defend our title, which you did. I think that hurts worse in training though like people do ask quite a lot about like pain and all that sort of thing which I think doesn't isn't really in the forefront of my mind in a race situation so much and I think when you win a race that, that all that sort of pain just magically disappears when you lose it feels 10 times worse but I think it's going to that places in training and like I said do, doing another four-year cycle of putting yourself through those training sessions through those training camps um through those sort of brutal interval sessions, all those sort of things that are all like a novelty the first time you do it. And it's like, oh, we're going to go to Mallorca for the first time. Oh, this is really famous hill I've never been up before. I wonder what this is like. And then being blown away at how tough it is. And then you go to your first altitude camp in Tenerife. You think, oh, this will be fun. And then you realise that that's a lot harder than what you think it is. And when you've done all, all of that for the first time, it's all a novelty. But all of that for a second time, 
you know how tough those training camps are you know how tough those interval sessions are you know you like you say you know that place that you've got to go to and yeah I think that's harder second time around and speaking of second times around what was the kind of difference in the um the atmosphere of 2012 to 2016 and in particular um the kind of atmosphere around the athletes village because we heard a lot in the news about how amazing um the infrastructure was for london um and conversely how unready um rio uh, seemed to be so what yeah what were the differences there which was the kind of more enjoyable place rio because it's kind of like a holiday or not because maybe the hotel doesn't have running water how's that going yeah, um, def- definitely London more enjoyable. Um, so we always do like a sort of holding camp in Newport before we go to an Olympics. So you're staying in the Celtic Manor, which is a five-star resort. You're getting pretty much weighted on hand and foot, everything you could possibly want. And then you go to an Olympic village, which even London, you know, it's, it's not a five-star hotel. You know, it's, it's just not. Uh, L- London village was brilliant. You know, the food was amazing. Really sort of no complaints about that. The only complaint was that we had a 500 metre walk from our apartment to the to the food hall each day, which is, you know, obviously a kilometre round trip, which is 3k of walking per day, which as cyclists is a lot more than I'd normally do. But, <laughs> you know, quite quickly, someone bought some bike locks and we were riding our bikes to and from the dining hall and just locking them up there. So that wasn't too bad. That was sort of my biggest complaint I had really about London Village. Um, going into Rio, we'd been advised things like, you know, take our own food that we might want, take snacks. And I was like, nah, they'll have everything that we could possibly need there. Like, like I say, London was fantastic. The food was amazing. I took zero food with me to Rio. Some girls had a whole, like, because we could bring two big bags with us. Some girls had a whole hold all full of, like, pots of porridge and, you know, various little sort of ready meals where you could add boiling water to, that sort of thing. And I took nothing. I was like, nah, it's going to be fine. Um, the food wasn't good at all. Number of times I cut into like a chicken breast and it was raw in the middle, um, which is just like not what you want at the best of times, but really not what you want when you are like preparing for the biggest competition of that four years. Like, you know, no one wants food poisoning. Um, yeah, a lot of the, the plumbing wasn't great. Um, a lot of washing went missing. Uh, the lifts broke quite a lot. I think we were on like the fifth floor or something, so not too high, but there were stories of people getting trapped in the lift for like half an hour. So that meant walking up or down the stairs with a road bike. Um, in cleats which you know probably not probably not very wise but you know it was, it was that or going going a lift and potentially sort of get get stuck and miss your race so there are all those little sort of differences like that and um, it was a bit of an additional stress because but then I also think you sort of you need to be adaptable as an athlete and like I say it's that contrast from going from the Celtic Manor in Newport and everything being perfect to going to a village in Rio which yes in a way felt like a holiday atmosphere there were swimming pools which we were, we were advised not to go into um and, you know, the, <laughs> the weather was was pretty nice and it, it was all really exciting in that sense but it was all the little things that you think oh is this going to affect things but you've got to just sort of deal with each thing one day at a time go and find your washing yourself because like I say that kept going missing um and just sort of sort out all those little problems which um looking back and uh, not really a big deal at all like once I was done competing I had a lot of fun in Rio and none of that bothered me but in those few days before the competition when you want everything perfect it was it was not as ideal but it's also all part of the Olympic experience and I'm glad that I can sort of look back on that and have enjoyed that and got through that and made it work and you, and you defended your title which is the biggest thing so it was fine um and before before you go Joe, because you've got a lot of commitments today obviously you're going to be commentating on this Games coming up, Tokyo, uh, a year later than scheduled. So everyone would have been preparing for five years, but the majority of athletes may not have raced as much in the lead up. There's obviously been a lot of disruption 
in your opinion, what's going to be what have been the biggest thing for the like for the the sort of Team BB track team going into this game? What will be the the biggest hurdle that they've had to face in the sort of last five years, in your opinion? So I think the extra year might have played into a lot of people's hands. Um, for example, I know Laura Kenny was injured uh, in early 2020. Um, well, she might have broken her shoulder. I'd have to check what actually happened. So like the extra year sort of played into her hands in that sense. And there's obviously a lot of young riders in the team that an extra year would have given them an extra year of development. Uh, but I think the main thing is when you're preparing for the Olympics, as soon as you get to one year to go, things get really serious and you really start restricting yourself on the things that you you do outside of your training and the things that you eat and socializing and all that, all that sort of thing. And, you know, life becomes incredibly boring and incredibly focused. So everyone would have done that from summer 2019 all the way through to whenever the games got postponed, then you would have had a few months of sort of readjusting then that year to go would have happened again. So they've had really a good 18 months plus of, of a year to go rather than just 12 months. And that, that's a lot of time living a not especially happy existence uh, I mean I'm not going to put a massive downer on it it's not the worst thing in the world at all but uh, it's, it's a very sort of strict existence and you really try and you know get get really strict on doing everything right so um, I think that could have taken its toll on people and I know there were a few riders that sort of you know across across different nations that sort of retired um, that you thought oh can't they just carry on for another year but another year is, is a huge amount of time so um, yeah I think that would have been a challenge and like you said before as well lack of racing I think some riders would have been happy about that some riders love just being based in Manchester having a routine going to from the velodrome each day but a lot of riders thrive off of racing and thrive off that competition so I think that will be a big challenge especially in the events like the Madison and the Omnium where you need that sort of racecraft. Um, so that lack of racing could be a problem for some people but you know overall I believe in the, in the team and I think they're going to do fantastic and last quick one from me obviously you said uh, earlier that you're currently studying um, uh, studying medicine and you hope to be um, doctor GP but you haven't stepped away from cycling entirely where will we see you next where will you see me next um, so def- definitely more commentating so I really I really enjoy doing that I do a little bit of coaching as well um, I still enjoy riding my bike so getting out now just when the weather's nice so very much a fair weather cyclist um, but yeah, sort of enjoy, enjoying all the good bits of cycling that I, you know, before when I was riding my bike, it was always about hitting the numbers and you know, hitting heart rate zones and power zones and all that sort of thing. And now that's not something I have to worry about anymore. But um, yeah, definitely um, continue commentating as much as I can, because I really enjoy doing that. And, you know, like like you say, I'm a student, so that normally most of the work's on a weekend. So that fits in nicely around my sort of study commitments as well. But I, I really enjoy trying to sort of bring the two worlds together. Um and obviously, sports very good for our health, so that sort of links in nicely to sort of lifestyle medicine and everything as well. So hopefully, um, in a few years' time, I'll be able to sort of promote some of that, those sort of things. Um, you know, more about getting everybody cycling, people cycling to work, people using cycling as a mode of transport. That's something I'm quite passionate about, and it's interesting the barriers that people face to do that. Especially now I've moved back to London, having been in the northwest for a few years. A lot of the people that I'm at uni with don't cycle as a way of getting about and they say like you know they're too scared of the roads or you know various other things that puts them off so it's quite interesting learning about those sort of barriers which something that doesn't really bother me personally you know I ride my bike every day for for a decade as, as part of my career so now riding my bike is not not an issue but for a lot of people it is so that's something I'm keen to sort of find out more about and help. So there we have it listeners uh, Joe Rousel-Shans 
ahead of the Tokyo Olympics. Really lovely interview, that. Nice and pithy, nice and short, but we do have a tendency for going over, uh, long over our allotted time, James. It was nice to actually get some really cool answers there around the Olympics, which is a really great sporting event, which is pointing out the obvious, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's, is, that, is that like if, uh, if you had a design, like a consultancy agency for advertising, yeah. a bit like Mad Men, you're there, like holding a scotch. Olympics, yeah. really good yeah. sporting event. Neck your scotch and leave. That's done. That's job done. I've already marketed that. What do you want? Five intersecting rings. Yeah, we can do that. Why not? We don't really need it because the strap line's so so punchy. Uh, yeah, no, Olympics is all right, isn't it? I quite like the Olympics. It's gonna it's gonna have all the all the events. I mean, I quite like archery, as we've discussed before. I would prefer it to be on horses. Um, and you get sucked into those things like a bit of curling. Obviously, I know curling's Winter Olympics. Do they have lawn bowls? No. No, they don't, which what is annoying because that's, that's basically a guaranteed <sighs> gold for the Brits, isn't it? It is, it is. And it's a fantastic, lawn bowls is a wicked thing to watch. It is, actually. Like, it's, it's, up there, it's up there in the, I shouldn't like it, but I do, section that contains darts and snooker. So, so my, so, um, my, if you don't speak to my poor other half, she'll confirm that I can watch any sport, literally. I will sit there for hours, motocross. Kabaddi? Lawn, yeah, Kabaddi, biathlon. I'll, I'll be, within 10 minutes, I'll have also like dialed myself up to be an expert on the sport on the internet and I'd be there just fully consumed. So this, this happened to me at the Olympics. I'll like find a sport and get really into it. So sometimes it's like equestrian because horses dancing. Yes, please. Dancing horses. Yeah. Wearing little kind of like funny little clothes. Exactly. Or, um, oh, I love like anything like decathlon, heptathlon, multi-event sports. I really like as well. Yeah, I love a shot put because I love the type of athlete that does a shot put because you've still got the occasional one that's left over from some like gene splicing program from the Soviet Union that just looks like Balrog from Street Fighter tossing effectively a cannonball that could have easily been aboard like Nelson, <laughs> yeah. like the victory at the Battle of Trafalgar. That's such an archaic because that's I kind of wish that they just went strict Olympics. They had like a spin off and it's called Strict Olympics. Like proper Roman Greco style, where you're basically running like ultra marathons to deliver messages to people, fighting to the death, bears, lions, javelin, javelin. I mean, that's a cracking. I mean, that's you know we still have that. That's a cracking one. That is. Who was uh? Who was our great um javelin? Steve Backley. Well, there was Fatima Whit- Fatima Whitbread though, wasn't it? The and uh, Tessa Sanderson. Tessa Sanderson. That's right. They were they were better than Steve Backley because I think they actually won. The Olympics, where Backley always lost to, um, is it Jan Schneider? There you go, becoming a bloody expert in jazz. I don't know. (laughs) I think, wasn't he the bloke? The bloke that always beat Steve Backley was the reason they had to change the design of the javelin because it was almost hitting the crowd. (laughs) To slow it down. He was over... He was overthrowing it onto the track and they were like, we we need to sort of wait, like, need to develop the javelin to sort of bring the record back because it's becoming un... Sort of, it's going to start killing people when they grow up. There's a brilliant, there's a brilliant documentary that bring that what you just say brings to mind about the Winter Olympics by uh, Werner Herzog, called um, the uh, the Ecstasy of Woodcarver Steiner, who was a like ski long jumper, and he was jumping so far they had to extend the course because he was out jumping the landing, which is insanely dangerous. So that's kind of cool if you've had to make a a larger track or change the implements 
that you use for the sport because you're just too damn good at the sport. That's it, Jan Selesny. It was the one who Jan Selesny, and because Backley got two silver medals in '96 Atlanta and 2000 Sydney, and I think he lost to Selesny both times. This has nothing to do with cycling, I realise. It doesn't. But I've, I was just thinking as well, though, how crucial the serial game is to the Olympic athlete. Because as Joe touched on there, just you know, just bringing it back because this is going to be relevant. If only there was, um, she'd known about the six world records in advance of negotiating contracts because she was also riding on the road. She did Wiggle Honda. Um, she where did she go? She went to the Pearl Azumi team, so she had road contracts, and she could have her and Danny and Laura and and other Olympians could have negotiated more money if they'd have known how successful they're going to be. Point being, you're an amateur. You ain't getting paid at the Olympics. So thank goodness for the back of Weetabix and shredded wheat packets where the likes of Steve Redgrave and Matthew Pinson and Sally Gunnell can find their faces and get their sponsorship because that's where you're making money. Now they're all on the Muller Yogurts, aren't they? Katrina Johnson-Thompson, um, <laughs> Adam Jamili, the 100-meter sprinter. I, I once uh, saw him be sick into a sink in a, in a pub because we're both from the same town and we got him, we got him so drunk once, uh, yeah, he... Up in the in a sit sink, so he may be really fast, but he can't out drink me. Really? Well, speaking of being sick, we didn't ask Joe about because I believe that Laura Trot used to be sick after every race, right? Like physically sick, just through, from the, through the, nerves. Yeah, from the nerves, not necessarily from the effort. Um, and I think that you know that the, these, there's a lot of energy there, and so I've been led to believe a lot of that energy does get expended after hours. And I used to know someone that worked for UK Sport which is um, kind of, I don't know, I guess like the media agency that represented the you know, the British athletes and stuff like the Olympics. Some of those parties get pretty raunchy. And there's some, sto- <laughs> there's some stories about some Tour de France uh, winners and some dalliances that may or may not have happened at these sorts of places. I have a so, story for you, but I can't, I'll tell you after. I'll tell you after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't tell you now. But, but no, Joe, tell me, tell me this, tell me two things. Did you watch any events in 2012? What were they? And the extra question, the supplementary question is, and across your um, incredible wealth of knowledge about the Olympics, who's your favourite Olympian? Oh, good questions. So 2012, I was 18. Um, and I I didn't, so I didn't like have enough money to apply for the tickets and that. So I remember it being quite expensive. Um, and my dad actually worked at the Olympics. He was a games maker in the archery. So it wasn't even like sort of we were sort of he was there all every day, so we couldn't even like pop along to some of those free events. But I did go to one, and it was the fifty k walk. <laughs> did um, you walk alongside the fifty k? I guess you can't keep up because that's the point. If one, you could, one foot on the one foot on the ground every time. <laughs> one foot on the ground every time. Um, but that was it. I didn't go and see any of the events. I didn't go and see any uh, any of the venues. I've been in the velodrome since and stuff, but. Um, no, I didn't actually. That's one of my big regrets because I've been to like rugby world cups. I've been to other big sporting events, but I, I don't think I'm ever have gone. Will have gone to the Olympics unless I go to Paris in twenty what twenty four is it now? But um, no. Uh, and my favourite Olympian of all time, I'm I'm not sure about that. Um, that's too hard. I'll come come back to me another time on that one. I've got too many. I'd get. You know, I'd really want to give some time to that, James. What about you? Did you see anything in 2012? Because you moved to East London, didn't you? You moved to the belly of the beast. 
Valley of the Beast. I literally moved to a flat that you can see the um, Olympic Stadium. I can look at it now. I can see the what's it called the orbital. I'm just opening the curtains. The um, that really horrible wrought iron sculpture, the orbital metal. Yeah, with the little slide on the side. With a little slide, gab stone down that for eighty five quid, mate. Quite a lot of money, isn't it? We did because <laughs> well, no, well, I want to, but at the same time, it's going to be like an hour and a half safety briefing, and then like three minutes down. And there'll just be some frustrated mountain climber just shouting at you because he secretly wants to be halfway up our Capitan, but bloody COVID stopped that. Anyway, so I digress. I was very close to the Olympics within, you know, in the belly of the beast. Um, and I've since ridden on its tracks, you know, outside and inside. The velodrome is brilliant. Great day out. Go down to the velodrome if you're ever close and get a bike. You can even go. To, you can go to the um, the swimming pool as well now. Just just the leisure center. Yeah, exactly, leisure center. Do the uh, there's probably an Olympic soft play in there somewhere if you have got kids. But within all of that, I didn't see anything, and I really regret it. But also, I know why, which was I just started um, at Cyclist Magazine, which is obviously the great grandfather to this podcast. Uh, a paper printed product, and we were busy writing words. What's that? What's that exactly? What's that printed word? And um, yeah, I was new to the game and I had a serious uh, bout of imposter syndrome that I think probably lasted for about six months. So I was very, very focused on not getting found out for being a charlatan and then taking away my dream job. So the Olympics just like washed over me. I saw a, you know, saw a bit of it on telly and that, saw a bit of the road race going up Box Hill a thousand times. That was boring, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, didn't watch nearly enough of it. So I'm sorry, Olympics. I'll try better next time. Well, you can... So it's in Paris in 2024, so maybe we should go out and watch some of the racing. Well, let's go out and watch the tour and then stay out and watch the Olympics. It's a plan, mate. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, but my favourite Olympian, because I know you want to know that. Go on, then. Bit left field, this one. Jamie Bolsh. Jamie Bolsh, the sprinter? Yeah. 200? Uh, he did. He was men's, it was men's relay. Um, he did win a gold at World Championships and a silver at the Olympics '96. So what was that? Atlanta was that '96? Yes, yes, that was. He was, wasn't he, with uh, Ian Evans? Ian Evans, I think he probably was. Yeah, yeah, but I just like him because he's got the best nickname of any sportsman or sports person ever. Go on, the Flying Pineapple, because <laughs> <laughs> he had that. He had his dreads. He had his cornrows, sort of thing. And then they were like kind of like topped up on his head, so he looked like uh yeah, he looked like he had a pineapple on his head. And that's his book. He's got a book out called The Fine Pineapple. It's been out for a while probably. Yeah. I suspect he's a motivational speaker. You can probably book him if you want. Get him on the pod. Get him on the pod. Anyway. <laughs> on that note, Jamie, if you're listening, come on the pod. We'll dedicate an entire episode to to the flying pineapple. Anyway, uh thanks again for listening to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed the Olympics. Listen again for the next episode in two weeks' time. Until such time, share, like, comment, all of the above, um, because we'll be really happy when you do. Um, And James, until then, I'll see you soon. Ta-ta for now.